You know this girl? Well, isn't she pretty? Earth Angel, Earth Angel. She was killed. Well, won't you be mine? Well, along with Jefferson Sevens, but I think you already knew that. Huh? No, I did not. I don't care what's fashionable or cool. It's all silly and it's all meaningless. I created so many of the things that you care about. The songs that give your life purpose and joy. When you were 15 and rebelling, you were rebelling to my music. Uh-oh. That's one you know. <laughs> that song was not written on distorted guitar. No, I wrote it here on piano somewhere between a blowjob and an omelet. There is no rebellion. There's only me earning a paycheck. Joining me today are Thomas and Brett from PSYOP Cinema, which I've had the pleasure of appearing on twice and have been an avid listener of for, I'd say, a good part of this year. I think you started it up last year. Is that right? Yeah, just over a year ago was yeah. uh, early September 2021 that we started. Yeah, so I sort of started uh, digging into it and uh, have found it extremely uh, rich vein of of material. And it's really made me uh, rethink many things about the nature of, of Hollywood cinema and our culture more broadly. So anyway, thanks for, uh, you know, doing this crossover appearance. Yeah, Jeff, thanks so much for having us. I really enjoyed discussing Roland Emmerich when you came on our show a couple of times. So glad to be on yours now. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure. Um, so yeah, I and people should check out my two, as well as uh, PSYOP Cinema more generally, should check out my two appearances where we discuss the filmography of Roland Emmerich. And, you know, I think it it's a good illustration of what the the project does more broadly, which is, I mean, not not exclusively, but often take on these these huge sort of Hollywood directors and think about them as sort of um, as the term that you often use, I believe, is cultural engineers, right, who are, you know, using cinema as a medium for uh, as a medium of cultural engineering. Right. In other words, they're using it directly to act on and um you know influence and shape uh the culture yeah sure i mean all the way back to edward uh, bernays uh, you know even before the golden age of hollywood you know he recognized that hollywood was the ideal vehicle um first case for for his vision of of propaganda you know is gaining a kind of complete control um over the mass mind so i mean hollywood has long been a site of um of cultural engineering but i guess you the show really is on the kind of post-Vietnam era up through, I mean, you can say up to the present. I think we're in the post-cinema era, you know, right now. But I mean, so we focus a lot on kind of post-Vietnam up into the early, early 2000s, because I think that is when, you know, more, call it formal psychological warfare operations actually, I think, cross over. There's a ton of evidence for this. Tom Secker's uh, 
book that what is it national security cinema and tom secker has a great site too uh, people should check out i mean he looks he, he's a little more narrow in his focus I and mean, he's looking specifically at where we can see dod cia working directly with hollywood influencing scripts influencing you know plots in in really specific trackable um ways but in the bigger picture yeah there's a there's a major I mean, there's almost a revolving door, I want to say, um, between the, the intelligence world and, and Hollywood. Right. And, you know, just to um, so as you mentioned, there's there's kind of a rich um, body of material examining this this function of Hollywood going back to the early 20, you know, early to mid 20th century with with someone like Bernays for, you know, who's really a, a sort of, um, you know, himself, uh, you know, performing this kind of engineering and sort of advising others on how to do so. So there's a side of it that is, is really from the perspective of, of the people doing it and envisioning how to do it. And then you have, um, you know, a certain, a certain vein of sort of cult, popular cultural criticism in the middle of the 20th century that, that looks at this and, you know, coming from where I come from, which is, you know, academic humanities and, and particularly sort of literary and cultural studies it's interesting to me that you have the Frankfurt School sort of analysis of the culture industry, which in many ways ties into this. And then you have a certain amount, you know, which which really sees, uh, you know, pop culture as propaganda and and as, you know, engaging in this kind of, um, you know, what, what they I mean, in, in the chapter on the culture industry and dialectic of enlightenment is um, enlightenment as mass deception. Right. So in other words, they really do see it as a as a project of mass deception. And then, you know, you have certain strains of sort of critical theory that take this up in different ways. But, you know, in actually what you get, you know, in this post Vietnam period is a certain turning away from that. And cultural studies shifts from being extremely suspicious of the function of popular culture to being highly celebratory of it, right? So what's strange in, in uh, humanities academia is somewhere around the 80s or so, suddenly being suspicious of the cultural and social function of something like Hollywood becomes a form of elitism, right? And is is kind of uh, becomes passe, right? And instead what you're supposed to do is kind of and you know and what's interesting is the the cultural studies model then feeds into this i mean we could think of something like poptimism but you know more broadly this mood of cultural journalism which is highly infused with this sort of theory to, you know this sort of uh uh vocabulary of like queer theory and feminism and and critical race theory and so on but but tends to try to be celebratory right it it takes the latest sort of hollywood swill and tries to find the kind of liberatory uh, sort of you know um uh pro-feminist you know pro-trans whatever kind of message in it and so you know there's been this weird development where it's like you um where i'd say the left and the marxist left you know in its in its earlier form was highly suspicious as i mentioned in the frankfurt school you know, it, it pivots to the the opposite, and that becomes the dominant mood of kind of left inflected cultural criticism that you're supposed to kind of celebrate and see these 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 products because they are popular as being somehow reflective of some spontaneous popular spirit. And to the extent that they're seen as engaging in any kind of cultural engineering, that's entirely celebrated, right? Because it's making people more uh, tolerant or making them more um, accepting or 
you know, so so to the extent that that's recognized, it's in that is itself in a celebratory mode. So, you know, co- kind of coming to your project from you know thinking about all of that, part of what I realized is that a lot a lot of what you're doing is is sort of you know, would have been quite familiar to the left of, let's say, the Frankfurt School, but also like the earlier Noam Chomsky, but, you know, has largely become a kind of alien project to left academia, which which paradoxically or, or not, you know, basically is, has come to, and, and cultural criticism by sort of college-educated journalists, you know, has, has come to serve this function of being a kind of booster um, and and celebrator of whatever the latest kind of cultural products the the culture industry puts out, and then you know when they're a little bit too problematic, they get scolded for not being you know entire having the latest system update on cultural liberalism. <laughs> so you know so as a result, and this is something that, you know you mentioned in in some notes previously, you know there's been this shift where if you engage in this kind of cultural criticism, looking at these phenomena, that's sort of coded as a as a right wing project, right? Um, so that's you know that's all quite uh, quite interesting in terms of the kind of broader intellectual trajectory of of sort of cultural criticism, and think about the relationship between culture and power. So I don't know. Those are just some of my my initial thoughts of of kind of you know stuff that came to mind as I started digging into your project. Yeah, I um, Brett, I know you'll have a lot to say on this because you know Brett and I talk a lot about the evolution of how um, cons- of how so called conspiracy theory has been viewed kind of in relation to the political spectrum as kind of going from a largely left wing phenomenon historically to now something that is associated almost wholesale with with the right wing, with the dangerous right wing, the subversive right wing, with Alex Jones types and things like that. And that largely, I think, explains a lot of the shift in academic perspectives about these things where, uh, where as you say now, if there is a uh, if there is a general suspicion of pop culture, it's because it doesn't go far enough in, in promoting a lot of these social trends that uh, humanities discourse would be largely in favor of. But it's, it is a very bizarre phenomenon, I think, just because when we look at these things, when we look at uh, at pop culture and think about film as a technological medium of entertainment. And, you know, Brett mentioned Edward Bernays and just thinking about what we know about the incredible power of this medium to capture our attention and shape our perception of reality. And then uh, we cross-reference that with just the very well-known presence of the intelligence community in U.S. military. And in Hollywood, you know, I think you know, Ben Affleck has talked about, you know, CIA is, uh, you know, the Hollywood is full of CIA agents. And there are plenty of other quotes like that. And that's all very verifiable. And, you know, even though maybe in some ways uh, the U.S. intelligence community has been rehabilitated to the American left just by virtue of, oh, now it's the American intelligence community fighting Trump and people like Trump now and, and some of those more left-leaning perceptions people still, I think, should be very, very aware of just basic perception of the kind of Alan Dulles legacy of the CIA, of thinking about this horrible history of surveillance and assassination and coups and torture. And of course, the MK Ultra program, which is very important to our analysis and of all these things. And so when we, we think about, um, and so when we think about, uh, about pop culture, about film in particular, Hollywood in particular, and even just Hollywood in itself, what we know about that, like through in a post Me Too perception of Hollywood, just thinking about uh, Hollywood culture and history as just this den of sin and abuse and all of all these things that are also uncontroversial to talk about or thinking about Epstein, um, uh, Hollywood associates and things like that. That's all out there. But for whatever reason, I think just largely because and oh, also, of course, 
uh, transformation of the American spiritual landscape, thinking about things like new religious movements, the new age, um, and just like other movements away from institutional traditional religion towards things that are more associated with esoterica uh, and things that are could be more glamorized by, uh, by progressive culture in and outside of academia. Uh, th- there's a lot of crossover, th- that kind of messaging and those worldviews with what we see in Hollywood, particularly in genres like, uh, like science fiction. So with all of that, you see these, you know, you see uh, this kind of triangulation of pop culture, of uh, of new religiosity, and um, and American intelligence, uh, all of which uh, have this horrible dark side that most people are very very aware of. But just because of how this gets framed uh, in you know in terms of well, if you question these things in the wrong way, then you're uh, you're a white right wing, uh, maybe Christian nationalist conspiracy theorist or whatever whatever boogeyman of the current day is, uh, and therefore we're gonna like not not zoom out and look at the bigger picture of these trends and think about, wow, if there is this much verifiable crime and abuse in Hollywood history, if there really is this much evil in the history of American intelligence, and if there are dark sides to uh, transformations in religiosity kind of in the American political landscape, which if we look at, you know, say, look at Scientology, look at um, look at plenty of human potential-based cults that we can think of over the last hundred years, we know all these things are there, but for some reason, it's just very difficult for people to want to connect those dots and think about just how compromised our entertainment might be with regard to all of these things. So therefore, in Psyop Cinema, Brett and I largely have to uh, to build off of non-academic sources, uh, people outside of, uh, of academia, people like Jay Dyer, Jason Horsley, William Ramsey, and some others, in order to put forward our kind of thesis about cultural engineering in Hollywood. But it is very strange. And yeah, Brett and I were just talking, you know, just recently about um, uh, the Richard Linklater movie, uh, uh, Slacker, and just uh, how different in the early 90s the, the cultural associations with so-called conspiracy theory were than just kind of looking at bohemian leftist culture in Austin as compared to what people associate it with now. So I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, from Noam Chomsky back through you know Frankfurt School and um, this a certain degree of, of pop culture um, suspicion. And I think even beyond that certain degree, I mean, I think into sort of a certain amount of conspiracy culture at some time was even kind of encouraged by by the left and the kind of elite progressive uh, limousine liberal uh, left. And now it, it's it's, of course, really taboo. And this is a I mean, it's this is a really fascinating phenomenon. And, and I think the contribution like we can make with our work to people's thinking about this is. I mean, when Edward Bernays was making, you know, was making his observation about Hollywood that it's, you know, wow, like this is like this is the um, this is like the holy grail of uh, of propaganda. Um, like Hollywood did not have you didn't have the same kind of um, phenomenological power, if you will. I mean, there wasn't the knowledge of psychology. I don't think there wasn't the um, ability to to capture the audience's attention. There wasn't the knowledge of how sound and flicker rates and things um, alter human consciousness. Um, and this is where MKUltra comes in in more ways than one, but MKUltra comes in here because the official story about MKUltra, I mean, there's a few official stories, right? Once you get past like the, the court that something, it was just about like using acid to interrogate 
Soviet agents for counterintelligence purposes. And he goes, no, it was about mind control. I mean, and the official story then is it was a big failure and it's pseudoscience. And this is false. It, it was not a big failure. And more and more things are coming out showing exactly what they know how to do. And I mean, in this Tom O'Neill book, uh, Chaos, that he that he wrote about Manson and a lot of stuff, but I mean, about the Manson case and his possible status as, a, as an MK Ultra sort of Manchurian, not necessarily a Manchurian candidate, but as sort of an MK Ultra um, creation. O'Neill went into the archives of Jolly and West at UCLA, and, and I, he may have been the only person to look at a lot of these boxes or hundreds and hundreds. He's really paranoid when he's doing it too. He's like, I got to get this. I don't want to tell too many people I'm doing because then they'll get there and remove stuff. But he found a, um, a copy of an essay that Jolly and West had written a paper he'd written, which part of which a redacted version of which was released to the church committee. Um, but it, it turns out that what they took out of it was that. He report to actually just was basically his, I mean, his reporting to his masters that he'd figured out how to implant false memories in people and that the key was deeper trance state. I mean, that's why they were working on deeper and deeper and deeper, you know, levels of, of trance. So it's not a failure. MK Ultra was, was not a failure. I mean, it was probably scattershot. Um, and, and I don't know enough about it. I mean, what was revealed was just like basically financial documents, things that named the sovereign that was supposed to be destroyed um, too. So this, this it's growth in the, this tremendous growth, I think this like exponential growth in power of sound and image and Hollywood over consciousness, this correlates with the tabooing of culture conspiracy theories and that's the most taboo all is the even, i mean i was into conspiracy even when i considered myself a member of the far left i mean i was like kind of like those people in slacker i mean i pretty much inherited that um that's i mean part of the slacker culture is right not trusting the man being an active non-participant thinking the system is rigged so that naturally you know leads into conspiracy theory but the culture conspiracy was almost unthinkable to me you know um <laughs> at that time but i mean that's so that's kind of the ultimate there is the culture conspiracy so it's really suspicious right that the growth of culture power prima facie obviously correlates with turning conspiracies into the most taboo uh thing on the face of the earth so yeah that's that's the observation that, that i wanted to make um there i mean i, I mean obviously my thought is that the fabian franklin uh ideology is has colonized our culture and has won and right at the time when you know, in the post-60s era, smashing success of the sexual revolution and everything, they've, they've basically taken over the, the culture and they've got conservatives running a rear guard action and, uh, from then on. So you recently had an episode on the film Under the Silver Lake, which has a, you know, the film, I, I revisited it um, after a few years uh, just to to watch it before your episode or before listening to your episode. And um, it has this scene in which the protagonist, who's interestingly himself a kind of slacker type figure, he, you know, he, he's a sort of slacker conspiracy theorist type figure who, who seems more out of the nineties in some respects. Um, the, the protagonist played by Andrew Garfield. So he, and you always, uh, provide spoiler alerts at the beginning of your episode. So spoiler alert here for Under the Silver Lake. Uh, he is trying to figure out um, the what he thinks is the secret meaning behind the lyrics of this, uh, this trendy band. And uh, that, that, you know, keeps recurring in various scenes. Finally, he kind of confronts the singer of the 
the lead singer of the band and the lead singer tells him that the song that was that he didn't actually write it. Um, it was sort of fed to him by, you know, some higher up in the music industry. In any case, um, Garfield's character gets pointed to this weird kind of uncanny mansion, you know, somewhere in Hollywood or Beverly Hills. And, you know, he goes into this house and he confronts this old man who is playing the piano. And this old man uh, goes on to say various things, including, you know, the music that that you rebelled to in your youth, I'm paraphrasing approximately, you know, it, it was actually written by me. So when he starts playing Smells Like Teen Spirit, um, you know, and he, he goes through this whole kind of explanation that all of these things that are are perceived as kind of spontaneous moments of cultural rebellion are actually kind of scripted from on high, right? And he claims, you know, the music of your youth, but also of your father's and your grandfather's youth was all written by me, right? And so it's, in a way, you know, it's it's framed as this kind of revelation of, and the, and the Garfield character, even though he himself is a, a sort of a conspiracy theorist, you know, sort of, you know, can't tolerate this idea. Um, it, you know, when, when he says, you know, uh, basically, you know, Nirvana was a psyop and all this kind of stuff, right? It was this kind of fake rebellion scripted from on high and, and you were led to think it was spontaneous and authentic. And, you know, the scene, you know, I, I thought was very um, just re- relevant to your your project as a whole, as I understand it, because on one hand, we have this, you know, and as you said, this this kind of characteristic quality of post-Vietnam culture, right, which is that famously it sort of embraces the counterculture, right? It, it um, you know, it, it embraces and, and supposedly sort of commodifies, you know, what are seen as the the originally spontaneous and authentic values of the counterculture, right? So that's the standard narrative about this. And, you know, what you get is this, this sort of um, series of fake of fake rebellions that are packaged, commodified, and and sold to consumers. But, you know, this this scene um, you know, basically seems to suggest that it's it's even more than that, right? That that all of this stuff is is completely um fake and manufactured from the outset, right? It's not it's not simply that uh, you know, Kirk Cobain gets a record deal and then they sell out and become commodified, right? It's it's that, you know, in fact, all of this this whole process is itself uh, a kind of illusion that's created to shore up the notion of authenticity. But then, you know, the further twist in the scene is, of course, that, you know, here we're seeing a Hollywood film essentially reveal, and, you know, the examples I gave were about music, but you can see how it would apply to Hollywood um, products as well, which, you know, Hollywood has long excelled in producing these these appealing images of rebellion, of youthful rebellion, going back to the 1950s or earlier. And, you know, basically what's interesting here is that on the other hand, it is, you know, and and I think you often talk about revelation of the method and, and these other kind of ideas where, you know, there, there are actually ways that Hollywood will often kind of pull back the curtain and let you peek inside. And yet that itself also becomes kind of incorporated into the functioning of the PSYOP. So in other words, you know, this also kind of leaves the um, it, it, it and it, it relates to things I've written as well. Right. Because it 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 creates a kind of ambiguous position for, 
you know the the consp- the standard kind of project of of debunking and of of exposure um of of this kind of um project of of suspicion right and unmasking because in a way you know the unmasking the process of unmasking is itself something is it you know has itself become another commodity that is that is sold to us um as as this film seems to exemplify so those are just some kind of thoughts about that scene um because it seemed quite you know pregnant for for our purposes here so you know perhaps you could just walk us through a little bit you know the the way you understand the function of again this kind of post-vietnam hollywood um regime as as a sort of um you know a, a sort of um a, a project that that focuses on kind of marketing images of rebellion and the way that that rebellion is is itself, you know, kind of part of part of some larger sort of project of cultural engineering, and then finally, you know, what what these moments of revelation or of of looking behind the curtain accomplish within that larger enterprise. So on that scene in particular, and in a second, I think uh, I would love to hear Brett say something about red pill programming, I think is uh, is a concept he's really teased out in some of our material that's very relevant to your question. Uh, But that Silver Lake scene, I think, is very important and very interesting. And uh, that's definitely an episode if people are interested in checking out our stuff that I would uh, that I would recommend maybe people go to go to first or close to that. But yeah, what's what it's getting at there is very something along the lines of um, of the material presented in a book like Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, subtitled Laurel Canyon, Covert Ops in the Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream by David McGowan, who also wrote Program to Kill about the serial killer phenomena. And those are two books that will be deeply familiar to anyone, say, on parapolitics Twitter, but maybe not so much to people uh, to people outside of that sphere. But those are a couple of books that we uh, go back to frequently in our analysis. And Weird Scenes in the Side of the Canyon has is exactly what it sounds like from the subtitle in terms of the manufacturing of, of the counterculture or popular music associated with the 60s and everything related to that. So yeah, uh, that scene is important. The songwriter sequence in, uh, in Under the Silver Lake, because it is, I think, revelation of the method in that there's a lot of stuff going on in that film where there's a lot of half-truths that are there to obscure rather than to illumine. Uh, but with that scene, it, it comes pretty close, I think, to telling the truth about the synthetic nature of, of culture, that these things aren't, these aren't um, isolated manipulators here and there, that there's a larger, very sinister project going back um, into, the, the, into the roots of modern culture. And uh, in terms of um, in terms of um, the the reason that uh, that these glimpses behind the curtain are are so important in Hollywood filmmaking is uh, well for one reason is just the fetishization of the mystery itself, which is kind of what's going on in Silver Lake, where there's uh, there's certain things revealed about uh, what's wrong with Hollywood, but really the message at the at the end of the film, and since you already gave a spoiler alert, it's basically about Sam, the protagonist, learning to just kind of reintegrate in society, that there's the idea is that if you engage this mystery, you can either just become obsessed and fixated on it entirely, and it's just illusion after illusion after illusion, you can never actually uh, gain, uh, you know, find solid footing or gain actual coherent truth about reality. Uh, reality on a larger on a larger level, you can just become more and more obsessed with specific clues and specific rabbit holes and things like that. Or you can just kind of throw up your hands and ex- and just accept that you live in that world. At least for this kind of this this kind of incel toxic male toxic toxic masculinity coded figure like Andrew Garfield's protagonist. 
Uh, and so that's going on with something like Silver Lake. And we also see a lot of that in, um, say, for example, uh, Revelation and Method in The Prestige, the Christopher Nolan film that Brett and I analyzed early on in, in our podcast, where a lot of uh, what's going on there is just it's a film basically about entertainment, about Hollywood, you know, with all these analogies to, um, you know, to magicians and entertainment of a previous era. But really someone like Christopher Nolan is, you know, he says the, the message of the movie like is, is basically you want to be fooled, you want to be tricked, you want to be entertained, you love it, you just want to get obsessed with Hollywood in a way that uh, that you will just get sucked into the films themselves to the star power of the actors, to just the glamour of Hollywood myth-making about itself. And a, a good way to do that is just to, uh, is to show these hints about cultural engineering, but in a way that fetishizes, that fetishizes the mystery itself, that fetishizes the unknowing, the illusory nature of all these things. And that bleeds over into a lot of, um, a lot of the faults of conspiracy culture that you know, we would, might call uh, conspiratainment. And Jeff, we talked about some of this in your first appearance on PSYOP Cinema, but a, a term that I that I use a lot that I get from Jason Horsley is is the second matrix, where basically once you uh, you leave normie consensus reality, then uh, then Hollywood and other parts of pop culture of the superculture just give you all these ways for you to um, for you to think about okay, this knowledge itself is uh, you know bereft of any context of a coherent worldview that can get you out of these things is what's important. So I'm just going to kind of lose myself in that mystery, in my love of this entertainment, in my love of not knowing what's going on, uh, of being manipulated in a certain way. Um, and then that's that's kind of the end of it. So that's that, that a lot is what I think is going on there with the revelation of the method. There are other factors uh, as well, of course, but I, and then maybe Brett, if you wanna jump in, in here to talk about kind of the, um, the the packaging and engineering and commodification of rebellion with uh, with red pill programming and the like yeah sure and yeah very perceptive of picking up on that that particular scene and under the silver lake like as we discussed and we've had a couple discussions about it but william ramsey i mean that kind of encapsulates a lot of the themes that we cover in cinema um so i hope thomas's uh, uh explanation of what the second matrix is is, is pretty clear i mean like you're being offered this other reality that is the real world and you're going to get out of the false world, but it turns out that it's just another false world, or maybe you're nested into an even more false world. So what I call red pill programming is like kind of part and parcel of how that is working in the real world using the sexual revolution uh, since the sixties and seventies. And I can't, I, I can't present all my research and work here, but I'm completely convinced that, um, these methods are very deliberate. They've been developed um, over time. I, I see it in cinema. Now, the red pill thing is interesting because everybody knows that from, from the Matrix. But it has a couple of, um, it, it appears a couple of times before this, very obviously referring to the same general concept. But one of them is in the movie Total Recall, um, where the Arnold Schwarzenegger character who is like, Anyway, he's like an MK sort of victim. He doesn't know what's real, what's not right. He's being told that if he takes his red pill, he's being told that he's traumatized. He has neuro neurological trauma. And if he takes this pill, it's going to get him out of that and get him back into reality. But it turns out, I think it's it's actually a, a deception. It's a scam, you know, and he's he's he maybe he's in the re real reality now. And it's actually putting him in a false reality. I can't quite remember. But shortly before that movie came out, that's about 1990. Shortly before that movie came out, Charles Manson gave this pretty famous interview with a uh, Geraldo Rivera and he refers to it as well in the interview where Rivera is asking him, uh, you know, why are there so many murders, Charlie and Manson? I, I won't 
I tried to reproduce the, the cadence of, of Manson and, but he says at one point in his explanation, he says, um, you know, they didn't know what the red pill was until you told them not to take it. Um, something very close to that. Um, he's saying that they didn't, he's saying you're, you're putting violence on television. He says, and you're putting it out in the culture. You're making it seem risky. You're making it seem edgy and powerful. And that's why they're doing it. Um, and that's, and that's what he's talking about. So he's talking about what I call red pill programming. So it's a, it's a form of reverse psychology and you can do it at a very elaborate level or, or, or a simple level, but you have a certain behavior you want to condition. I mean, you don't tell people like not to do the behavior. You don't just, you also just don't tell people to do it. You have to encourage it in a way that you're, you're going to either their own eros will be drawn towards. So you make it seem edgy and, and, and dangerous. And one of my monarch episodes, I get into the dare program and, um, I mean, just look it up on Wikipedia. There's just like so many like major reputable university studies that showed it encourages drug use. And they showed it over a long time. They even understood the mechanism, how it was doing it through. But but they kept doing it. Eventually, the D.A.R.E. program got, got dismissed. But the whole D.A.R.E. program, and it's even sort of a trope in Hollywood, the D.A.R.E. program shirts and stuff. You look at it, it's a joke. They're encouraging drug use while pretending. I mean, the, the, the very people are like Elvis going up there, or Corey uh, Feldman, all these people that spoke for dare were just like coked up out of their minds while they were doing the um while they were doing the ad so what i said so the sexual revolution thing is people think that they, this is what the counterculture still doing the anti-war movement uh didn't win we didn't create you know this we didn't overcome the deep state we didn't overcome the warfare state um the u.s continued to to commit the same kind of what, what the hippies regarded as just crimes that were intolerable um they continued to do all that stuff and I mean, that's why, I mean, most people, I think, did not, I mean, in my generation, did not think the hippies won. We thought that they, that they lost, their ideals failed. But why, but you found, you find so many baby boomers that were convinced that not only did they stop the war, but they, they, I, they created the society they wanted, I guess. I didn't particularly want to live in it. So I didn't find that reassuring either. But no, it's that they, they took over the culture, you know, and they did it really fast. I mean, you went from having, just to give one index of it, you know, with regard to the sexual revolution, you, you know, you couldn't show a nipple or something in 1967. And then there's just porn theaters lining Times Square by the early 70s. And then then you see that, you know, Taxi Driver gives you the, depending on how you want to read the movie, you you see the bitter fruits of the sexual revolution, um, you know, uh, already going. But so, you know, E. Michael Jones' book, Libido Dominande, it's pretty long. I haven't read all of it, but his, his thesis there. Is 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 what I would um, commend people to that people who are highly sexualized, who have out of control eros and no discipline, they're easy to control. I mean, there's different ways to control people, and our rulers are are using our sexuality to control us. And this is, you know, again, it's a very Frankfurt School analysis, actually, because, you know, it's um, a repressive desublimation. You know, is one term for it, uh, but you know, you really already get. This notion, uh, you know, and this kind of feeds into uh, Adorno's much, much disliked uh, suspicion of ja of sort of, you know, pop the popularized jazz of like the 30s and 40s, right? Um, that he saw again, you know, through this sort of Freud, you know, Freudian Marxist lens as this um, this this way of sort of colonizing libido and using it to create um, a new sort of subject uh, that can be sort of managed and administered by the um, the sort of you know new uh, totally administered society, right? And so then 
you know, you you have this kind of split in the Frankfurt School in terms of how they respond to the counterculture, you know, where, I mean, on one hand, Marcuse basically, you know, comes up with repressive desublimation and he sort of has, um, you know, he, he has terminology that kind of already allows for all of this to be understood, but nevertheless, he's kind of looking for the new revolutionary subjects. So he's, you know, he's trying to be, uh, trying to be more charitable to these developments. Meanwhile, Adorno and Horkheimer really dig into this, this quite, you know, harsh sort of cultural conservatism and, and become, you know, increasingly socially conservative and suspicious of, of the counterculture um, in, in this, you know, sixties and seventies. So, you know, it is interesting that again, it, it really picks up a lot of these themes that that were quite, you know, significant in in sort of academic Marxist discourse in that period. But then, you know, the other, and you brought up O'Neill's um chaos and book about Manson, you know, which it, I, I'd say is, you know, um, I mean, it was published by uh, you know, big five commercial publisher. So you know, surprise, you know, it's, it's the kind of book that you, you know, makes uh, discoveries and, and arguments that you don't necessarily expect to find published by, um, by such an outlet. But, um, you know, <laughs> there you have this kind of bizarre um, realization that, you know, I, I think there's, you know, again, from the, the more sort of old school academic Marxist perspective, you can think about the culture industry kind of manufacturing certain sort of affects and and postures and so on through the through the products that are circulated. I mean, in in O'Neill, you really get this this inside sense of how the California counterculture is is sort of directly being shaped by um, intel, you know, by sort of these intelligence projects, you know, which have the specific purpose of sort of um, and and you know, completely self aware um, and and documented sort of. Uh, function of of trying to, um, you know, diffuse any potentially, you know, politically subversive dimension of them. And, you know, so you get the, the basically the point that someone like Manson, who's, you know, and, and part of the Manson psyop is to see him as this spontaneous outgrowth of this cultural development, rather than somebody who is, you know, a product of the um of the deep state right and who's and and who's also you know circulating in hollywood and in the music industry among all of these um extremely prominent people which you know again raises the question of um of the the degree of infiltration you know and and so it's it you know it i, I think it it raises similar themes to the ones i'm kind of tracing back to the frankfurt school but in a way it goes deeper because it's not, it's not simply a kind of account of, you know, sort of commodification. It's, it's also an account of, you know, the direct operations of power within this world through, you know, projects like MK ultra and uh, chaos and uh, Cointel pro. So, and, and what, you know, once again, all of these were once sort of, you know, heavily cited by, figures on the left as, you know, um, as particularly egregious cases of, of deep state abuse. Um, but, you know, now, now they tend to be things that are brought up in these, these sort of uh, conspiracy contexts that are generally coded as right wing. But, you know, this, I'm just gonna, 
you know, kind of pan out here a little bit, though. I mean, this figure of Manson, who, you know, is I mean, it's it's been interesting to see, you know, at the, at the time he was sort of, you know, and, and his uh, his uh, sort of cultural function was to kind of sound the death knell of any kind of optimistic account of the the counterculture. Um, but then at the same time, he kind of, so, you know, famously, like, people like Joan Didion sort of, you know, mark the Manson murders as, like, the end of the 60s. But then at the same time, he he gains this kind of allure, right, which, you know, you can then see come up in the, the branding of something like Marilyn Manson, right? But, you know, that allure is also of a piece with all of these other kind of dark outsider figures, um, all of whom you address at certain points and the, the figures I would, and, and, you know, and Manson is in some ways kind of at the, the crux of various of these, these types of figures, but, you know, the first would sort of be the figure of the assassin, right? The sort of, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald, um, et cetera, you know, sort of mid-century figure of the political assassin, right? Who has a different profile from the earlier political assassin who is like, um, you know, uh, usually has a kind of explicit sort of anarchist political orientation a lot of the time, or is, you know, just just has a very specific kind of political goal that that is being sought, whether it's John Wilkes Booth or, you know, the various kind of anarchist assassins who were, um, you know, who were operating in the late 19th, early 20th century. You know, the the sort of post-war figure of the assassin is this you know, figure who is um, the object of psychological study, right? Because there, there's always some level at which their motivations are not entirely clear. Um, you know, then we get figures like who, who you've discussed recently, like um, John Hinckley Jr. and Mark David Chapman, right? You know, in a way, kind of bringing the 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 cycle of of assassinations to a close. And then, you know, the next kind of figure in the sequence, as I would see it, is the serial killer who, you know, is um, in some ways, you know, a, a sort of characteristic figure of like the uh, 70s and 80s. But there's been obviously a huge resurgence of interest in the serial killer, as most recently illustrated by the the new Dahmer uh, series on Netflix, even though, you know, the serial killer is now or or perhaps because the serial figure is in a way a figure of nostalgia now because, you know, he no longer exists um, as a as an element of the news cycle. And then, you know, the the next figure I would put in this sequence would be the mass shooter who in some ways replaces the previous two figures and and serves sort of similar functions in the cultural, the collective cultural psyche. So, you know, I'm. I'm curious to just kind of get your thoughts on that sequence as well as, you know, a further point would be the case of Manson as revealed in, in O'Neill is that he's really, a, you know, would seem to be a creature of these, these deep state projects. Right. And so these figures tend to be interpreted, you know, by normies as, as these, um, these um, pathology, you know, these um, pathological excrescences who kind of reveal the dark, um, the dark recesses of, of collective psychology. And, you know, what the Manson example, you know, which is well documented illustrates is the, is the way that that can miss the, um, the fact that many of these figures, 
you know, have have backgrounds that point back to the the direct intervention of all of these kind of bizarre deep state um, projects. And so, you know, I'm I'm just kind of curious uh, if you could riff on some of that. I mean, obviously, you've covered covered some of this ground in in recent episodes, but just the way this cultural figure of the outsider, you know, manifests in in the three types that I mentioned where there is a certain kind of sequence that that occurs and and just more broadly how that connects to larger projects of cultural engineering and then ends up in these kind of feedback loops where these figures are obviously kind of often you know glamorized um as figures of a kind of rebellion in a sense by the media and then you know that that seems to feed directly back into the broader psychological operation of generating more of these types of figures. Right, right. I mean, I think that um, the thinking of these figures as outsiders uh, in relation to how, how you think about the figure of the outsider on this podcast is really interesting because it's something that we get at on, on Snap Cinema a lot. It's just the way that cultural engineers try to convince us all that, oh, hey, here's this darkness that's just a natural part of you, that's a natural part of humanity, natural part of your society. And aren't you so fixated on this darkness, which proves that you were that dark to begin with. And just that cycle uh, just, um, just, just kind of continues in perpetuity. And, um, and when, when in actuality, when we look at the specifics, a lot of, uh, a lot of these figures historically that you're, uh, that, that, that you're naming, we can see, you know, specific uh, historical action, historical actions of powers like the deep state that have done these things to culture, to our society. Like it's not, uh, it's, it's not that there is just like this almost supernatural, um, like, you know, like this, like this with the serial killer figure, let me jump into the middle there. So um, like with something like David Fincher's Mindhunter series, which we did an episode on a while ago, like the figure of the serial killer is given this almost supernatural mythical status, just this amazing, uh, this just like this, this, this amazing figure that we all have to be so focused on and fixated on and just stare at and wonder at and puzzle at how can people like this exist? And that's basically what the FBI FBI, uh, you know, psychologist heroes of the show do. And then we're also simultaneously chastised for thinking, oh, it's unhealthy, but also you just can't quite help yourself, right? And that includes uh, the, the portrayal of Manson of in, himself in that show. And we actually called our episode on Mindhunter Manson Family Propaganda for the way that the show completely just validates the Manson family's like story about itself, basically. But yeah, it just completely obscures like everything you would get from like a, like a res- great research from like someone like Tom O'Neill. Uh, and then also around that time that you have... Um, that you have the O'Neill book coming out. You also have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from Tarantino, you know, more Hollywood self-worship, mythologizing, and um, just this fairy tale about Hollywood where it's like, oh, everything would have been totally fine and wonderful in our culture if just uh, we had big, strong Brad Pitt there at the right moment uh, to save Sharon Tate from, um, you know, from this isolated incident of these crazy people. Uh, when, yeah, it's all that is covering up the fact that there is a completely synthetic way that the serial killer phenomena is being produced and not only uh, not only traumatizing culture through the initial violence, but then through just films. And again, Fincher is a great example, stuff like Seven and Zodiac and other material from him that re-traumatizes the public by shoving these crimes in our face over and over again. So the serial killer is a really good example of that kind of pseudo outsider figure. And then same thing with uh, the the kind of, the, the assassin figure, we also recently covered uh, Mark David Chapman's, um, uh, the portrayal of Mark David Chapman from Jared Leto in the film Chapter 27, which is more of the same 
plenty of evidence. Brett has gone into this extensively, especially in some of our bonus material that Mark David Chapman was a kind of MK Ultra uh, Manchurian candidate assassin figure. And then that all just gets covered over so we can be traumatized by this portrait of insanity that gets fetishized by Leto's uh, portrayal of Chapman. And then there's plenty of other films that do the same thing. And then also with the mass shooter, you have the kind of weird association of um, of the mass shooter with the kind of uh, this kind of incel mass shooter type with the Joker figure. And again, a lot of this material I'm talking about, we cover in a, in a series of recent episodes on the Joker, broadly speaking, that we've done and that we're, we're continuing. Um, but you have uh, basically the, um, the, the, the shooting for the Dark Knight Rises and then some misinformation there about to what extent the shooter like, identified with the Joker and then that bleeding into the 2019 film uh, Joker and the idea that, oh, uh, some, some incels are going to come and shoot up a movie theater with the mainstream media basically salivating over that possibility. Um, and then we think that that movie itself is very thematically complex, some actual good indictments of, uh, of elites there, but then still that same glorification of dissociation as almost this, this, this thing is to be, um, that is to be gained that almost gives one uh, superhuman powers or, or supervillainous powers uh, like the Joker character has by the end of that movie. So also there as well, you have this kind of, um, this kind of split a uh, different kind of uh, di you know, different kind of fixation on the incel mass shooter type from from different figure from different sides of culture. On one hand, you have the kind of uh, literally me uh, cast of characters, you know, the literally me meme where you know that can go from like um, that's Patrick Bateman, that's the Joker, that's Tyler Durden, that's uh, any number of that that's um, uh, that's Walter White, that's any number of anti-hero kind of or villainous or psychopath kind of figures that people in a certain very online uh, young male cultural sphere like learn to associate with and, and identify with, maybe being unaware of the fact that that's not genuine rebellion, but that is uh, itself uh, a deep psyop. And then on the other hand, you have this existence of this threat, this outsider figure, the the Joker, uh, young white nationalist, whatever incel man who's going to come and shoot up a movie theater as a pretext for just doubling down on a lot of the progressive cultural trends that themselves are probably in some ways not identical with, but associated with these trends of cultural engineering that we're naming. So I guess in summary, the all of these things that you know, Manson is, is you know, it's maybe the er example of all of this, but uh, going into the serial killer, the uh, the MK assassin, the mass shooter, all of these things are um, are phenomena that have. Uh, just historical roots in uh, in factors uh, associated with the deep state and cultural engineering and then corresponding just decades long cultural ops of people uh, having false ideas of these things shoved in their faces through mass media in a way that uh, that both covers up and increases the traumatization at, at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the archetype at work <clears throat> underneath all this, the master archetype is what we named the first two Joker episodes is this dark self. And yeah, it's this association between like apotheosis, self-divinization, and psychosis. Um, and what really is chilling, like doing the the Chapman research and finding that actually the same archetype was playing with. I mean, whether you think it was induced or not, it was like playing out in the psyche of Chapman, where he started to he started to pray to Satan to make him insane, just to free him from the troubles of the world. Very much like the the Joker uh, character in um, uh, the Alan Moore comic, Killing Joke, uh, and. And then later he wants, he's praying to Satan, like to give him this sort of strength uh, to do, but yeah, so you, it goes from like the, the more is very important in this. Cause I mean, that narrative and the killing joke at least gets the first phase of it where like he gets freedom 
you know, the, the pain of being a man is so terrible. So he gets freedom through psychosis. And the next stage is, of course, you get godhood, you know. Um, but yeah, very, I think it's this this archetype is selling this dark self archetype. And there's some other uh, vectors of it besides the Joker, but it's yeah, selling psychosis. And it's and in many ways, dissociation is being sold through through a variety of archetypes, you know, to um, to the culture. But I just want to, to kind of pinpoint the, the overarching conversation about yeah organic versus synthetic like do you think culture is organic think it's synthetic you know the stereotypical normie worldview is that culture is all organic and then there's of course like a stereotypical caricature conspiracy worldview where it's all synthetic of course it's got to be some combination um of the two i mean uh, over time i mean it's it's i have believe i've discovered that it's way way more synthetic than i was um than i was led to believe and the the thing is though like if if you do if you're <laughs> If you're sort of hip to cultural studies, if you think you understand something about culture, if you think you understand something about human psychology, I mean, it kind of stands to reason, right? If people have figured out how culture works, whether it's the Frankfurt School or whatever, they figured out how culture works. And there's various claims to know how human psychology uh, works. And if these were combined uh, by by people with um, cultural capital, right? What well, I mean, it just kind of follows that there'll be there will be synthetic culture and i mean we're i mean just i mean and we're in an age now it's weird because everything is synthetic it's it's kind of so obvious and i mean that was uh the observation of the director of under the silver lake like one of the reasons he said it first of all he's a, kind of a slacker himself and he was setting it closer to the 90s so the character's age made sense but also like he felt like that period in hollywood there he in his words there was like still a little bit that wasn't phony, you know, and, and the implication being like now, like everything is, um, that everything is totally phony. But one of the ways you just know that this outsider, dark self, um, now whatever incel conspiracy theorist uh, uh, cultural archetype is largely, partly synthetic is like these feedback loops that we've got, like in the movie chapter 27, which we're analyzing. The movie itself shows that they understand that Chapman himself, you know, is a um, is to a great degree a creation of media like Hinckley, um, you know, was. And they there's an obvious knowledge of the power of media to inspire these spectacular crimes that in turn change culture. I mean, Chapman, God, he just always sounds like he's programmed. But when he was arrested, one thing he was saying was. In, in like one of his many explanations for his crime between the catcher in the rye and Satan was um, the, the Beatles were this cultural phenomenon. I think that was even his word. They were the biggest cultural phenomenon or something. He said, and they changed the world and I changed them. You know, so this desire for culture, you think about it too, like why does Hollywood like this narrative? Because it's totally self-serving. It makes it sound like Hollywood. I mean, I mean, throw your life away, kill people, anything for fame. Um, you know, it's the sort of people that run the fame machine, whether they're doing it cynically or whether they drink their own Kool-Aid. I mean, one of them is just it's self-serving and they love to I think they exaggerate their cultural power, to be honest with you. I mean, that's how much they show it off, though, if you know what to look for. I think they exaggerate it, which is also a form of psychological warfare to kind of, you know, project uh, omnipotence. That's the um, that's kind of the playbook in in uh, PSYOPs since uh, Michael Aquino and Paul Vallelay. Um but yeah, the culture can, I mean, culture, once it can be authored, it will be authored. Um, you know, so I, I marvel at how this 
problem escapes people's attention who like, I mean, you can argue against particular conspiracy theories, cultural conspiracy theories, but I just like feel like a lot of people um, are, are missing the point. That's why I do like these, these meta, these meta conspiracy theory uh, discussions. And I hope Jeff, you'll come on. I wish you'd come on and do one of our Joker series episodes. Cause you just have a great insight, I think, into, into what we're doing. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's I mean, I I found that that series incredibly rich, you know, kind of in relation to what I was what I was pointing to. And the you know, the, I mean, the other the other thing that's come up, um, you know, you brought up uh, you brought up Mark David Chapman um, and, you know, another kind of interesting uh, document that's come up in the, in some of these discussions is the Catcher in the Rye, which, of course, is the favorite, um, you know, the, the favorite, famously the favorite text of of all these assassins um, and, you know, is featured in the film um, uh, Conspiracy Theory with Mel Gibson, which you mentioned, you know, which is an interesting kind of I, th- I think that was from the late 90s, um, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly kind of an interesting document of that of that moment um but it so the catcher in the rye you bring up this you know point that jd salinger himself was um you know working in intelligence you know which which wasn't atypical for you know uh for smart young men who you know kind of came of age in the war period you know the sort of second world war era when the the sort of intelligence services were really um exploding in significance and so he writes this novel and there, there's sort of this idea that it's a a document of of um neuro a kind of neurolinguistic programming you know we don't necessarily need to get into that but you know it is interesting in relation to this this theme that 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 interests me which is the sort of way that the the archetype of the cultural outsider the i mean again the you know the usual story is something like you know, you have the emergence of, I mean, I read something about uh, Norman Mailer's text, The White Negro, uh, sometime earlier this year. You know, so you have all these documents that are kind of of the emergent, the initial emergence of the counterculture in the in the years after World War II, you know, which kind of culminates in the beat generation. But then, you know, already there you get this kind of commodification of it. And then, you know, so this happens again and again, but, you know, there's kind of this alternative story I think you're hinting at sometimes, which is that this entire trajectory is is itself, you know, a, a part of this broader project of cultural engineering, right? They're, um, they're you know, and, and so that, you know, regardless of what we make of this specific claim about the catcher in the rye, you know, because it is such a kind of generative text, and becomes the touchstone of countercultural rebellion for generation after generation, right? And becomes this kind of rite of passage text that, you know, particularly young men read, you know, and, and in many ways it anticipates various of these later things, like, you know, you can sort of see it as a proto-incel text. And, you know, it, it, it's just, um, it, it, so it's a very rich document that that in a way kind of anticipates the entire trajectory of of sort of countercultural rebellion in the post-war era up to the present so you know if that already is kind of a an op coming out of military intelligence then in a way that's kind of a beautiful encapsulation of this whole this whole argument 
Yeah, very much so. I mean, a lot of what we've done in our in our Joker series um, is you know examine these these feedback loops, as Brett mentioned, between uh, between fiction and, um, and and history, whether it's in literature or film, and then like looking at these actual these actual examples of assassins or other uh, other forms of crime and things and things like that. And uh, for a while, I was thinking of like, okay, we can trace a lot of this back, a lot of these loops back to uh, the, the the Travis Bickle character in uh, in Taxi Driver, um, and then there, even in there, there's kind of these intimations of the Phoenix Program and some of the the the, the darker sides of um, uh, even darker sides of the Vietnam War and things like that. But then, yeah, even all, ultimately, and we can trace these things back. I suspect through history, almost almost indefinitely, but uh, but definitely. Um, Holden Caulfield and Catcher of the Rye, uh, I think it does say a lot that even with that, even with just that as an example, the, the Salinger intelligence, uh, intelligence involvement says, you know, says a lot that this whole, the, you know, the, you know, going on for decades and decades and decades, um, a figure of the, the alienated man, uh, you know, who gets into social rebellion of these different kinds, just thinking about how that has been engineered and why it might be so. And there we can get in, even, into even broader things is something that we talk about from time to time in the show is just the, uh, the evolution of, um, uh, of like, what is the default idea of, uh, of the hero in, in, in a society and what it might mean for that to change from something like the night with all the, the, the commitments and intonations there to something like, like the spy uh, and everything that that uh, that implies socially, politically, um, you know, and certain maybe even religiously or metaphysically, and then from there on to something like uh, something like the superhero, uh, or like in some ways, I think that uh, that the superhero is just implying the supervillain is the truest form of the superhero, and the Joker might be the truest form of the supervillain, which is maybe why he's so important. But just this evolution of what um, of uh, of thinking about alienation in these different ways, moving from ideas of uh, order and stability to increasing levels of glorification of liminality and instability. And then eventually um, we might move from something like, um, like Holden Caulfield, alienated figure to the idea of, well, eventually we get to the idea that not only is your inability to navigate society actually kind of a leg up that makes you a cool trickster anti-hero or psychopath figure, but maybe as with many, uh, many superhero stories or other science fiction stories, physical or mental trauma literally makes you into a god of sorts. And um, and then again, that from there we can even get to like, this is why so many forms of pop culture rebellion are uh, ineffective because they're embracing these same ideas of apotheosis, of achieving godhood, these kind of transhumanist ideas that uh, that we might associate and criticize when we, we think about them in line with, a, say, a, a Klaus Schwab figure, the Great Reset, are also all through this kind of manufactured second matrix material that a lot of people who are into conspiracy theory, quote unquote, would also be into. So a lot of thoughts there, but, uh, but I do think that, uh, that this idea of, um, of social alienation and, um, or even trauma being central to one's uh, hero's journey or what makes one think someone interesting as a person say a lot about the trajectory of cultural engineering with regard to deep politics and to the manufacturing of culture. Yeah. You know, one thing I, I wanted to highlight, I want to come back. There's, I wanted your insight on this, this too, Jeff. It's like, there used to be, I guess, right. So, so if um, pop culture suspicion kind of starts to become taboo, you're saying around the eighties. Um, I mean, it's the sort of, there's a debate that was very vibrant about kind of this feedback loop thing in general terms, like the role of media in, in violence and, public health and media and i mean frankly kind of like discussions i would like to reopen 
um, that I think yeah. is closed. Yeah, go I ahead. I mean, Jim. that's been, yeah, that's been very interesting to me. I mean, I remember, you know, kind of growing up in the 90s, it was very, um, it was very uncool to think that media could sort of influence people to do bad things, you know, sort of, <laughs> because that that was kind of the moral majority arguments, basically. Exactly. Um, I mean, but, I but, then, but then it sort of flipped insofar as now kind of the left is obsessed with censoring tech platforms. And so it will constantly, you know, make exactly those sort of claims about, you know, why, um, you know, such and such platform or such and such account led to such and such mass shooting. So in a way, the the terms of the discussion have flipped. I mean, I think, you know, part of the problem with how it's framed is to, you know, make it about individual acts, um, which I think is, I mean, so one point that you, I, I think a term that you use frequently is um, like low frequency M- MK Ultra or something along those lines. Or low, low intensity. Yeah. Low intensity MK Ultra. So, you know, I think the idea here is that, you know, you have the sort of, you know, the full on sort of MK Ultra programming that, you know, it would seem, you know, perhaps someone like Manson, you know, imbo- and and not only him, but his followers kind of embodied kind of what what you can what you can get out of that. You know, it's often associated with, you know, attempts to kind of turn I mean, turn people into sort of killing machines, um, turn them into, uh, you know, basically um, a sort of, uh, you know, easily manipulable sort of Manchurian candidate type. And of course, this was represented already, you know, back when, I mean, the whole history of this mind control stuff is very fascinating because, you know, as I understand it, it kind of comes out of this panic about Korean War POWs being mind controlled by the communists. And so then they're like, we've got to figure out how to do that, basically. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you get these these various attempts to achieve that, which end up involving LSD and and other things. But, you know, so so you have that, right? And then, in a way, the attempts to account for, say, the behavior of, like, um, you know, just uh, violent youth in general or of, like, individual mass shooters, you know, tends to kind of try to create some sort of one-to-one, um, you know, correspondence between some particular source that that somehow triggered or prompted them to carry out the act. So I think that tends to be, you know, very difficult to, to sustain. And so it ends up being a kind of weak argument. But, you know, what, what tends to get left out is, um, you know, the broader kind of, uh, you know, to use a sort of academic Marxist term, um, you know, the, the larger kind of structure of feeling that is created by, immersion in particular types of cultural products right and so i think it's it's possible to see you know again the figure of the mass shooter as as culturally engineered in in a comparable way to and and i think here i'm i'm more or less um following a line that you've taken but correct me if i'm wrong you know in a comparable way to how we could see manson as more directly produced seemingly by these these experiments of the era Um, but, you know, instead what we have is this kind of, um, broad application of the same sort of techniques to the culture as a whole, which seems to reliably produce certain types of, of people who perform certain types of actions. And that, you know, I mean, the the reason the left's sort of recent 
um, attempts to, you know, shut down various websites is dumb is because it, it, I mean, first of all, it, it, it seems to assume that people are motivated to carry out these actions by being exposed to specific thoughts, right. By being exposed to specific claims. And, you know, given that we have mass shooters who behave similar, similarly of all conceivable ideological persuasions, right. That doesn't make any sense because clearly you can, you can become a mass shooter for, you know, a great variety of different reasons as far as like what your stated articulated grievances are. But, you know, what, what we should be trying to understand is how, um, how our culture, you know, seems to reliably engineer this type of personality and also what the, the function of doing so might be. In other words, why, and this is why, you know, the sort of Alex Jones take, you know, well to, um, or, you know, the, the take that he has, he has offered at certain points, while too simplistic, you know, it, it is important to see these as sort of synthetic events, right? Not in the literal sense that they're, that they didn't happen, that they're staged, but in the sense that they are the product of these processes of cultural engineering. I mean, I guess the, the thought I had after the Uvalde shooting was, you know, that in a sense, the the type of the mass shooter is really is is something like the type that some of these mk ultra projects aim to produce right very straightforwardly right they were you know uh there were these you know massacres in vietnam that would produce some um, you know adverse uh sort of traumatic psychological responses from the people who participated in them so the question is how do you make a a person who is a more sort of cold-blooded killer who's willing to go and mow down a bunch of children without remorse. Well, it seems like in some way our culture has ended up, you know, through this, through something like this, some low-intensity MKUltra has ended up kind of reliably engineering precisely such such personalities. So I don't know, you know, I think I'm partly trying to channel some of the arguments uh, you guys have made here um, while also kind of offering some of my own, but I don't know to what degree that sort of accords with with your analyses as you understand them. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think the low intensity MKUltra, that, that, that's a really important piece of this overall, overall analysis here uh, when we think about the importance of uh, dissociation and dissociative fantasy um, and what dissociation can do in the context of something like a specific MKUltra experiment um, and then uh, in terms of producing something like, like an assassin or somebody who can be manipulated or controlled or that way. But then we can just think about the effect of low-grade sustained you know, trauma uh, just that that we that we can see. I mean, a really obvious example would be like in the culture of of horror movies or things like that, where there's often a competition to kind of see like, all right, how much uh, how much low grade trauma can you know like how can I can I put into my mind and body for entertainment? And then of course, when you get into the actual symbolism and uh, and themes of those films, like it becomes even more sinister. But in a lot of other ways, there's just um, I think through a lot of forms of film and music and other uh, other other forms of entertainment, there is this idea of just this broader idea of what we see from these specific MK experiments where it's yes people can become more programmable uh, especially in the sense of of being able to um 
be put into a state where they're having these kind of power fantasies. And again, the superhero genre is so important here as are other forms of popular fiction uh, of power fantasies of these fantasies of like absolute power when they're in precisely their most powerless state. Um, a, a really good movie for uh, teasing out those dynamics is Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch, which we analyzed some time ago. So yeah, I think that that's, uh, that, that's definitely going on. Um, and also I kind of agree with you about the, 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 the red hair and trying to look at our, what specific, uh, website did this mass shooter read that caused them to do these things when we look at a lot of these people um, there's a lot of incoherence uh, in their in their stated worldviews there's a lot of uh, things thrown against the wall that might seem extreme from a lot of different directions um, and then so really I think what we need to be looking at is just basically uh, how their mind got them into the state like what they like what uh, how are they broken down to this point of just like reaching out for all this extremity where they were um, where they were then in a state where they can perform these actions that possibly had some other other de uh, deep political usefulness that we might not be aware of um, and or think of someone like Bobby Primo the Highland shooter there was uh, as soon as that happened back in July people rushing to say oh is it, he's a he's an SJW he's a Trump guy or whatever when of course what we should be focusing on is just like how horrifying his videos were and wow this was a man who was just like really really taking in a lot of the darker parts of culture and just determined to make himself insane uh, it seems and I think that that um, and follow, I think following those threads are much much more fruitful than this weird kind of diversion where it's like, I'm not even opposed to like having this kind of like almost puritanical uh, attitude of just like being somewhat horror. I think people need to recover some of their shock at, uh, at culture and be willing to say, maybe we should censor some of these really harmful things, but it's being done in a very, very, uh, very, very silly, unsophisticated way when it's just thinking of like, ah, this, this perfectly normal person just, uh, just, just read a conspiracy theory and it broke their brain or whatever. That's just having people. It's like, it's, it's a, it's a dumb, it's dumb and it's in the wrong direction of where people should be looking for these engineering factors. And Last House on the Left, by the way, um, well, you're mentioning horror films as, uh, trauma-based psyops. I mean, Last House on the Left, which was Wes Craven's uh, debut film and is um, just a, a ghastly piece of cinema nobody should should watch, but he has explicitly said that what he was trying to do, and this is what, 73 to something, he was trying to visit the, the trauma of the Vietnam War and the My Lai Massacre and all this on to American audiences. So he was deliberately trying to traumatize American audiences when it was taboo, in any case, to portray Vietnam at that point, or really to reference it, except in, I mean, I guess you could in a movie like that, but um, so that's the, you know, that that's the era, you know, when a lot of the, I mean, because I mean, the slasher genre comes out of this, this collapse of moral standards, you could say it comes out of the, uh, the victory of the the counterculture and so much of that genre is made by you know people who are really you know deeply immersed in the counterculture and and who are hippies um like like craven and i, I don't know i'm still developing this idea i don't really have uh, probably not enough space here to to even clarify my own thoughts but it's the so the outsider figure is i mean i'm not trying to say the whole outsider figure is synthetic just so your audience understands like and i don't i don't even know if salinger you know, I, I don't know whether he just, whether, I mean, suppose he started writing the story before he was in intelligence, he just wrote most of it while he was in there. I, I don't know to what extent the, the story itself is is actually was designed to be used for neuro-linguistic programming. But I mean, you can obviously take pieces. I mean, something like The Wizard of Oz, which wasn't made for MKUltra because MKUltra didn't exist, but it is a, um, 
you know, it is a sort of theosophical story. It has a lot of, and, it, and it's children's stories are about, are often about sort of mild dissociation and things. So it can be useful for that. So, I mean, to some extent, the outsider figure itself in American culture is, is perfectly organic, but I think it gets more synthetic over time. And like this new Hollywood era um, where this new generation, I mean, Hollywood used to be Republican. I mean, Hollywood was conservative um, at, at one time. I mean, whatever the personal morality and behavior of various people were, and there were, you know, and there were activists on the left and stuff, but the, um, the sort of brass in, in Hollywood were, were conservative and, and Republican. Um, but that changes during the new Hollywood, when their, their kids were not, though. Um, although, and even the... I mean, I was going to say even the radical Hollywood, they were, you know, I mean, they were communists, right? They weren't they weren't interested in selling uh, sort of images of countercultural rebellion. They were interested in, uh, you know, making movies that would sort of inspire the working class to rise up. Right. So, so yeah. the sort of even the, the left elements of Hollywood that were, you know, of course, largely um, marginalized by the, the in the McCarthy era. You know, we're we're very we're of a different sort than the later ones, right? Because if, if you see yeah. the movies that that they did make, you know, they tended to have this kind of old left, like social realist, you know, tell uh, uh, stories that um, that will um, you know inspire working class solidarity kind of approach. Yeah, precisely. I mean, even at some level, John Ford is kind of uh, is kind of an old left. I mean, he kind of he got away with. I'm surprised, like he didn't get. Uh, uh, question during the who act stuff um for uh the grapes of wrath because like the book is i'm sorry his movie is like even in some ways more radical um than the book and yeah people like bogard and mccall who are who were like you were saying like labor traditional left activists well this new crop though many of them were closet republicans i mean i love dennis hopper's the best one like dennis hopper's a man who believed in no boundaries at all but i mean he loved the warfare state he said he he, he voted republican he bragged i think he only admitted in the early 2000s he voted republican every year until obama weirdly he couldn't vote for uh, mccain for some reason but this was true of many of these people that they were closet uh, conservatives in ways you wouldn't expect often when it comes to foreign policy, you know, so people like Frank Zappa or, um, or uh, David Crosby and people like that often into guns and stuff in the background, but they want to break down all, all these boundaries and, and things in, in culture. So um, yeah, but there, you know, I mean, again, there used to be this vibrant discussion. So of this, and this, when this new outsider, I mean, the, the, the defining outsider figure of the new Hollywood era is Travis Bickle. Um, there's other outsider figures you can talk about, but that is the defining sort of outsider figure of the new Hollywood era. And there was a debate, I mean, at least beginning really when the movie was made, whether this was uh, good for society, like whether you're going to create figures like this. I mean, it got booed at the con film festival, I think also because of the sexualization of Jodie Foster and others, but it's very controversial and partly for this very reason. And then when Hinckley, oh yeah, I guess all of that turned out to, all those those fears turned out to be well-founded because when Bush family friend, uh, John Hinckley Jr. tried to assassinate um, Reagan, you know, the, the official reason was that he'd been um, hypnotized, uh, you know, by the movie isn't from watching it uh, so many times. So that really did open up a debate at the time, whether these sort of figures were producing in movies, the slasher. I mean, in England, they, they introduced a lot of censorship over this era, you know, was there, was their answer, you know, in America, it worked um, a little bit differently. It kind of 
some of the darker elements from the seventies, they went into the, the um, movie underground and the B movies of the eighties. While the new, when the new Hollywood era kind of ended in the eighties, the studio started creating a kind of squeakier clean surface image, but at the bottom they were, you know, peddling in the most runs. I mean, they almost got involved. I mean, all the studios almost got invested in porn. They were very close. If, if the public had accepted the mainstreaming of porn in the seventies, which happened in the two thousands, you know, Columbia and United artists and everybody, they would have been in the porn industry too. I think um, an interesting film in terms of all this is Paul Schrader's Hardcore. Oh, ab- absolutely. Yeah. Is, is a, uh, you know, I mean, is is made sort of soon after uh, the sort of porn industry is, is essentially unleashed. And, you know, it, it really juxtaposes this, you know, old, older small town middle America with its sort of Calvinist values with this you know, increasingly depraved sort of urban California world. And, um, you know, it's just, uh, I mean, you know, by a significant new Hollywood figure who of course is also associated with Taxi Driver. So, you know, that's another film that I think, you know, is, I mean, and I think it's quite a brilliant film as well. And, and doesn't, um, you know, I, I, I would say is, um, it's hard to read in a, psyopy way as i would read it but i'm i don't know i mean i'm interested in you know it seems like you um yeah a lot of your focus has been on these uh these sort of uh post 90s or sort of 90s and and after sort of auteur you know generation of auteurs basically nolan snyder uh i mean i don't know if we count them as auteurs fincher definitely Uh, i'm not sure about the other two but or nolan is definitely a, a sort of auteur figure but you know, they're, they're somewhat different than the auteurs of the sort of Schrader or Scorsese generation, um, you know, partly insofar as they're, they're um, you know, they're, they're taking these techniques that, that have a certain degree of kind of avant-garde origin, but they're, they're really plugging them into the, the fully commercial sort of Hollywood machine and, and using them to make blockbusters. So, you know, it, 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 my sense is you've sort of been mostly focused on sort of that, that generation, which, you know, it, it is obviously, you know, kind of the next major generation after, you know, that comes of age in the nineties, it's sort of the next major generation after the, the sort of, um, you know, the, the great auteurs who, who, um, who emerge in the seventies, Schrader and Scorsese among them. Um, so, you know, what's what would you say is significant about that that particular generation in terms of the kind of larger evolution of Hollywood? Well, I sort of want to let Tino Thomas has to go in a second. So yeah. I want to pick up some of that. So I sort of don't know if Thomas has anything to say about the maybe just the why did we choose kind of uh Schneider, Fencher, and Nolan? Um, you know, if Thomas wants to to speak to that. Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh Christopher Nolan seemed uh like an obvious choice in a lot of ways, just because of uh, the consistent themes uh, uh, you know, of his movies. And so both the fact that he is this kind of, um, you know, a tour figure in a different way than we would see in these older generation of filmmakers, but somebody with a very, very singular style who you can see the evolution from his older work to his newer work of him being given what we would think of as the method of these kind of technical, um, you know, the, the, these technical ways of really affecting the audience and getting, getting his themes across. 
Um, but you these these with uh, with Nolan, it's the fact that yeah, he did um, he did his Batman trilogy, and we're very interested in kind of uh, genre fiction and superhero stuff, as I've said a few times in this conversation. And then the consistent um, these consistent themes of uh, of reality as endless illusion and getting lost in that and being okay with that and that being a good thing. Basically, this kind of fetishization of dissociation that I've talked about, though it's, it's it's more nuanced than that. And then just how explicit Nolan's work ends up getting in terms of uh, you know his movie tenets. It's, it's the time traveling uh, specter super CIA and that's a good thing because they're protecting us uh, that kind of stuff or the transhumanist stuff and in interstellar Snyder similar reasons um, uh, the, the, I would say the dissociation themes get even more explicit with him and Fincher we're really interested in serial, serial killer phenomenon the details of a lot of that in our Zodiac episode we go really deep into some of the case details and things along those lines. So I, I just think that a lot of the these very, these directors who are so mainstream and yet their messaging can be so explicit with this regards, with regards to this triangulation of, um, of uh, glorification, of uh, glorification of not just, um, not, you know, not just uh, clandestine political power in a lot of cases, but of genuinely occult themes, these genuinely megalomaniacal superhumanist uh, these superhumanist ideologies and with you know, a lot of these recent figures from different directions, you really see that. And then after them, I think you basically see the deterioration of the art form so much. It gets almost hard to watch that you know, once you have the great filmmakers of, uh, you know, uh, of the, the mid to late 20th century uh, performing their tasks so well, then you can get the more explicit uh, you know, stylized stuff of the last few decades. And then it just basically you get, um, you, know, you know, just streaming, uh, streaming service crap as the, as the new propaganda. So just kind of capturing those couple decades from the 90s to the, you know, the early 2000s and some stuff from the last few years uh, just really provides us with some vivid snapshots of the overall picture of culture engineering with relation to superhumanism um, and explicit uh, political propaganda and all these things. So um, I should uh, I, I should bow out myself. I have somewhere that I need to be, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, thanks, Jeff, for having us on. And uh, yeah, I hope you and Brett can um, yeah can can finish talking about some of these things. I'll look forward to hearing it. But uh, yeah, great to talk to you, Jeff, as always. Yeah, you too. Look forward to the next conversation. All right, take care. You, Thomas. Bye bye. Um, I mean, another you know th- this point about dissociation also ties into an interest I've had for a long time, you know, which is, you know, perhaps the ultimate figure of the outsider in, in the modern era is the schizophrenic, right. Who, you know, first kind of emerges as a recognizable type in the 19th century. Before that, you don't really have a, a very um, clear taxonomy of, of psychopathology. So it, it sort of emerges along with the, the, the emergence of psychiatric nosology, but then, you know, it's also a, a condition that interestingly, I mean, you know, this ties into all of your themes because, you know, one of the great essays on on schizophrenia is, um, you know, the Freud student Victor Tausk's on the origin of the influencing machine in, in schizophrenia, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but, you know, it essentially, um, it it's an examination from about 1919, I believe, of the tendency in schizophrenic sort of delusion and hallucination to um, imagine something like a, you know, something like a cinematic projection, right. And to, to perceive the world as, um, as a a fabrication or an illusion, right. And to, and to believe that it is mechanically or technologically produced. So, you know, within, within schizophrenic sort of um, worldviews, you, you have this emergence of a sort of account of something like, um, cinematic propaganda, 
right? So, and of course that then feeds into these movies like The Matrix that that in a way pick up on these kind of schizo themes that are popularized in previously by people like Philip K. Dick. Um, you know, you mentioned Total Recall before. And so there's this, on one hand, this idea of the schizophrenic, you know, the schizophrenic is kind of the, the outsider. He's also sort of the visionary who can, you know, see the, the nature of, of propaganda of, of the, um, the sort of artificiality of the, the world that's being uh, presented to us as, as real and who can sort of see through. I mean, I, I, when I talked to Thomas about uh, the 13th floor, um, you know, I mentioned another movie that came out the same year, which is Dark City, where, you know, you have one version of this where like there's this character who is coded entirely as a schizophrenic, right? He's got this, you know, he's got this, um, uh, you know, sort of map he's drawn up on the wall of all the kind of connections and proofs that that show uh, that, the, you know, the, the truth of the world that they're living in, which is that it's a that it's a fake, that it's all an illusion. And he's represented as, you know, as a kind of characteristic sort of madman. Of course, it turns out that he's the only one who's actually gained insight into the reality of the of the world that they're living in, which is entirely artificial. And so, you know, this figure of the schizo, you know, then also comes up in cultural theory, famously Deleuze and Guattari, you know, sort of uh, see the schizo as the 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 figure of liberation right um again this kind of visionary who um who you know is is in a way a kind of emissary from the future and then sort of nick land you know picks up on this um and so you know part of what's interesting to me is like and and then finally we have this whole strain of avant-garde art going back to surrealism which in a way tries to um, you know, put the put the viewer in this dissociative state, right, and and kind of approximate the the experience of of schizophrenia, and you know there are, there are all sorts of avant garde works that that do this in different ways, and I think you know part of what's interesting about someone like Fincher is you know he's kind of within that lineage, um, in in sort of or Nolan you know in kind of using cinema to to um, produce something like that state. And at the same time, he's, uh, you know, he's basically, you know, doing it on behalf of, of the culture industry um, and doing it in an entirely sort of commercialized way. So, you know, there's some, there's some sort of interesting trajectory there, which I think, you know, <laughs> in a sense goes directly against the sort of pop Deleuze Guattarian idea of the schizophrenic as the sort of figure of the ungovernable uh, person right and and in a way that that in a in a, in a sense the schizo the sort of dissociative schizo becomes the new sort of desired mode of the subject right that that power is is deliberately trying to engineer uh, yeah well said i mean selling madness uh culture who was the so the uh the 19 what was it that schizophrenic Oh, uh, Victor Tausk uh, on the origin of the influencing machine. Okay, so do I have this? Do I have this correct that he found that schizophrenics they often have this delusion that they're in a manufactured world? Was that? Yeah, more or less. I mean, he just yeah. you know he pointed out that many of them will um will you know claim that there is a an influencing machine. In other words, a, a machine that kind of directly works on their 
um, senses, right? And, you know, can plant thoughts in their heads, can cause them to um, to perceive false realities. Well, I mean, and, he, and he directly says that, you know, often the way that they describe this machine is similar to a, a movie projector, right? A, a cinematoscope. So it, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting text because it comes kind of early in the era of cinema and it, it shows that schizophrenics are already, you know, using that technology to kind of, um, to, you know, describe the, the experience of this kind of dissociative reality that they're, that they're undergoing, right? And they're, they're attributing their sense, their sort of weird sensations, the sort of seeming strange appearance of thoughts in their head that they perceive as coming from the outside and so on to this machine. Well, yeah. So, I mean, that kind of, when you think about, when you put that in the context of all of the pop Gnosticism that really um, kicked into high gear in the late nineties, you know, Truman show matrix, 13th floor, all that stuff. I mean, that kind of adds to that adds weight to the thesis that, you know, pop culture is kind of um, trying to in inject mass psychosis, um, you know, into people. I think the, I mean, the, I mean, schizophrenia is like, or, or psychosis, or I know these are not the same. These are not the same thing. They're kind of parallel, but um, like symbolically, these are fractures, you know, and when it's the fracturing of the mirror that you see constantly, like, like in uh, cinema, it's the fracturing of the psyche, especially in these like monarch movies. And I mean, like Snyder's um, uh, Sucker Punch, right, is, is like a is like the master key to a lot of this um this mind control language which i think is sort of about inducing dissociation um you know in people and selling that fractured state um is fetishizing that fractured state and um you know i think that's that's part of the mechanism of how pop culture is working but the gnosticism thing i mean that really reinforces you know how that plays into it making people think they're in a manufactured um you know world obviously promotes i, I think psychic uh fragmentation um just a couple other other points i i might have to run right just in a second um um jeff but i, I did you did you still want me to respond? i can say a few things about um the 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 new hollywood era and i mean why we chose i guess you could say quickly why we started where we did i mean there's a lot of accidental reasons but it's you know the old sort of hegelian owl of minerva flies at dusk i think when you get to sort of the end of the cinematic period the eclipse of hollywood's importance in terms of engineering culture i think things like video games and other things have, and then of course the the whole shakeup of the distribution model of movies and so many things have, have changed but it's that kind of era right at the very end of it i think is where we started because a lot of um a lot of things we're studying have kind of reached their efflorescence there and we can get a really good look at them um you know we can sort of separate the uh wheat from the chaff at that level you know part of what's going on in you know the outsider figure of the 70s is so the holly the 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 production model was very different in the 70s than it would become even in the in the 80s uh, in 1958 the supreme court uh forced the uh, forced the studios to get rid of what they called vertical integration, where they, you know, they they were they had the they owned production, they owned distribution, and they owned exhibition, movie theaters, and they were told they had to divest themselves of one of the three. So they divested themselves of the theaters, and this, for a variety of complicated reasons, this ends the kind of classical Hollywood era. So by the early '60s, and then by the middle late '60s, the studios as they exist, they don't know 
they're they're failing and they don't know what audiences want anymore i mean for for a generation they felt like they had their their hands on the pulse of of america they felt like they were telling america you know what what to like and dislike but they couldn't quite figure out what was happening so um that was an era when these sort of the these auteurs influenced by the french new wave influenced by kurosawa and all sorts of foreign films and having some of them being the first generation of film people like Paul Schrader. I mean, he was a first generation, I think um, UCLA film school, which is, which is like foundational, the new Hollywood era. He's like first generation AFI American film Institute. So it's the beginning of the study of film, beginning of like film becoming reflexive um, film about film um, in, in this era. And it's these auteur sort of directors who they get a lot of creative uh, power because the studio doesn't really know what the audiences want into their shock movies like Bonnie and Clyde, uh, which um, Warner, uh, Jack Warner was still alive. Like he just thought this was a piece of garbage. Like he couldn't understand. I mean, apart from all the violence and stuff, like he couldn't understand why anybody would like it. And it was a sensation, Arthur Penn's, you know, so and that's, that's one of the, it's kind of the beginning of the American new wave in a lot of ways, that movie. But um, so, but the, the, <laughs> The synthetic elements come. I mean, I, I think it gets complicated. I mean, the mob buys up one of the was it called one of the big studios, and um, there's a lot of overlap between a lot of these um, new Hollywood luminaries, De Palma and Dennis Hopper, and people, and and the kind of Laurel Canyon scene, which looks very much to be um, a military intelligence psyop to a great degree. So, anyway, I know I've I've droned on a lot in answer to your, your question. I know we got a little bit off track, but um, I hope sometimes if we could do uh, just an idea, I mean, no no pressure, but it'd be great to do the to do slacker. Um, yeah, yeah, sometime. yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, very, very formative movie for me. Um, you know, it, it's <clears throat> just to kind of finish off, you know, something that that's come up in this conversation a bit is, you know, it. it I mean, another point that I think you're you're making that I'll, I'll underline is that, you know, with someone like Fincher or Nolan, you really did have I have a less firm opinion on Snyder, but with Fincher or Nolan, you certainly had a kind of vitality, you know, despite the extremely kind of synthetic nature of what they're producing there is there is a genuine kind of um vitality and you know that there's a kind of deserved auteur status um to what they're doing um but you know it it, it does seem like that that particularly that figure right and and this i think you know in if i mean it's interesting right um this this concept of cultural engineering you know if there's sort of a a figure of the the sort of heroic engineer who sort of you know builds dams and engages in other kinds of public work projects right and then you know th these figures like uh bernays who we discussed earlier you know they really do imagine there being similar a similar kind of heroic um cultural figure right who's actually who's actually um you know in, in that early account you know valorized right as as performing important work and so it does seem like in some ways that um, that type of figure is, uh, you know, which which tends to be a kind of heroic masculine type um, is, you know, made it may, has been made increasingly sort of obsolete by the functioning of culture today. Yeah, we call it so, the, master, the master manipulator archetype. And um, um, Jason Horsley calls it the imposer type. You know, he has a really good analysis of that in 16 Maps of, of Hell. And Christopher Nolan, I think that's the center of his work, actually, is this this archetype. 
So just to maybe finish off, uh, you know, part of what's uh, part of what's interesting about your project is you just described it as you're sort of, you know, making it at the the twilight of the the cinema era. Um, I mean, I, I wrote something recently about about these kind of new attempts to resurrect this kind of voyeuristic noir type cinema. And, you know, I, I made some similar points about how, you know, there's a certain obsolescence, you know, which which is all derived from things like Rear Window. Um, but, you know, it's it's really, uh, it, you know, it, in some ways, the 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 relative weakness and mediocrity of those films, I would say, is partly just a a a reflection of the the decreasing significance of cinema as a cultural form um which you know which then kind of leaves us to confront uh the the new dominant cultural forms which which are in some ways i'd say kind of harder to take stock of yeah well to show i'm still a film buff i think uh it's a net loss you know <laughs> to lose to lose cinema i think the uh, its successors um leave a lot more to be desired so well, we should wrap it up there. Uh, thanks so much for, for this conversation. And yeah, I look forward to uh, further crossovers, hopefully in the future. Yeah, Jeff, it was a lot of fun. It's a great conversation and I look forward to future collaborations. Excellent. I don't believe you. Well, good, because the real message was not meant for you. So it's better if you just smile and you dance and you enjoy the melody. Because this ugly old man, me, I am the voice of your generation. Your grandparents, your parents, and all the young people that follow you. I love rock and roll. Drop another dime in the jukebox, baby. <laughs> oh, look at you. <laughs> Everything that you hoped for, that you dreamed about being a part of, is a fabrication. Your art, your writing, your culture is the shell of other men's ambitions. Ambitions beyond what you will ever understand. <laughs>